Live from the New York Stock Exchange, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Struck down, coronavirus infections soar among Chinese health workers. Lasting effects, the Center for Disease Control warning the virus could be here beyond 2020. And love lost, the U.S. Attorney General attacking President Trump's tweets. It's Friday. It's also Valentine's Day. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move this Friday. Happy Valentine's Day, as I mentioned. Thank you for uh, your ongoing engagement with First Move. Can't promise that's the end of it, but take a look at what we're seeing as far as uh, stocks are concerned. Pre-market looking a little bit unloved this Friday, I have to say, uh, flat after a pretty volatile session Thursday as well. We recovered earlier losses to end pretty much unchanged cautiousness, I think is the watchword here. The story also today in Europe, a serious Friday feeling, not a Valentine's Day one. Over to Asia, the Nikkei falling some half a percent to transport stocks weighed. I'll reiterate again, uh, coronavirus fears perhaps simmering there too, although Chinese stocks did manage to finish the day higher. In fact, the Shanghai Composite posted an overall rise of near one and a half percent this week, despite the developments in the virus outbreak. This week in Asia, however, is ending with a stark warning from the Prime Minister of Singapore. He says the impact of the coronavirus has already exceeded that of SARS back in 2003. He says recession is a very real possibility. Quote, this, of course, a small, open, export-driven economy. Trade is key. Not the only country, though, worried. Downbeat numbers from exporting giant Germany to the economy flatlining in the fourth quarter, that well before the coronavirus outbreak became a global concern. The Eurozone, in fact, overall growing at its slowest rate since 2013. Let's bring it back to the United States now. Robust consumer spending continuing to support the economy. New numbers today showing retail sales rising and expected 0.3% last month. Sales, though, rising over 4.5% year over year. The mighty U.S. consumer. All right, let's get to the drivers now. I want to bring you the latest on the coronavirus outbreak. The coronavirus striking medical workers over in China. Beijing saying more than 1,700 healthcare workers have been infected by the disease. Six have died. This, as the country reports, more than 120 new deaths today, bringing the total number now to nearly 1,400. In the meantime, Japan reporting seven new cases, sending the total there to 257. The majority of cases in Japan are from the Diamond Princess cruise ship. The Japanese government has allowed some of the most vulnerable passengers now to leave the ship and complete their isolation on land. David Culver once again joins us from Beijing with the latest. Just to give us a sense, David, 90% of those infected medical workers are in the Hubei province, of course, tackling at the heart of the disease here. But really critical understanding here of the impact of being on the front lines of, of tackling this virus. No question, Julia. And you might recall we have been in touch 
with a lot of those doctors and nurses throughout this crisis. For the past few weeks, they've been sharing with us, initially keeping it rather private because they didn't want to get in trouble. But it's gotten to the point where they were then willing to vocalize it more publicly, that they didn't have enough supplies and they felt like they were being sent into battle, as one nurse put it, without the armor, essentially the protective gear that they have come to rely on now to treat folks with this virus. I mean, you're talking about the hazmat suits, the protective suits, as well as the face masks and the goggles. Now, while that gear may be getting to them at this point, because the central government has stepped up mobilization efforts and deployment of that supplies, for some it's coming too late, and the numbers are proof of that. As you mentioned, 1,716 medical workers infected with this virus, the vast majority in the epicenter of all of this, Hubei province, and even within the city of Wuhan in particular. And then you had six of those who lost their lives, one of whom we spoke with, Dr. Li Wenliang. He, he passed away just last week, but uh, a week before he passed away, we were in touch with him, and, and he could barely talk on the phone, but described his efforts early on to try to sound the alarm about this virus. He was one of those early whistleblowers who ultimately succumbed to the illness. But there is some good news that we are seeing, and and that's something that uh, the Chinese state media certainly has wanted to put out as well, and that has to do with the recovery rate. In fact, CNN for the first time today was able to see from a a family who, mom and dad and a one-year-old who came in front of the hospital to share their story of really survival, of coming through this. And that is the reality for the vast majority of folks who get this virus. Um, But they described to us how they got it. It was essentially contracted from a family member uh, who was in from out of town, from the Hubei province. And uh, the one-year-old, of course, you, you see that, you know, how young uh, he, he was being impacted by all of this. I mean, it's, it's emotional to see, um, but at the same time, it's a relief to know that families are pulling through this. Uh, we did hear from the doctor, and it's interesting to hear what that infectious disease doctor had to say. So take a listen. We are seeing fewer and fewer patients. Today, eight people have been discharged from my hospital unit after undergoing treatments. There are now only 21 patients left in my unit. So, Julia, that's coming from one of the doctors here in Beijing, trying to give an idea that outside of Hubei and even outside of Wuhan, where things are are increasingly, we're hearing, getting desperate at times, it seems like they are trying to find uh, some sort of grounded in stopping this spread outside of that region. Yeah, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later on in the show as well. David, great to have you with us. And to all these people that are are working in these conditions, in particular heroes, every single one of them. David, thank you for that. All right, let's continue talking about this because America's top public health institute is saying the virus might be around beyond 2020. The CDC, the Center for Disease Control, says it's in aggressive containment mode. Dr. Sanjay Gupta has been granted access to the CDC and he joins us now. Uh, Dr. Gupta, great to have you with us. Um, Sanjay, can you give us context here? What does this mean? What is the CDC telling us here and and their sense of the containment efforts in China and the risk of community spread beyond? Can you give us some context here? Yes. uh, You know, first of all, some of the strategies that have gone into place, Julia, uh, 
are strategies that haven't been used in this country in 50 years. So that gives you some idea of the seriousness with which they're taking this. At the same time, uh, to your point, to your question, uh, the, the, they're talking about this idea that despite the best containment strategies, we're talking about a little tiny microscopic virus. It doesn't respect borders. So even the best strategies, the, the, the best you can hope for is to slow this down, not to prevent it from getting into various places. So it's all about buying time. That's what Dr. Redfield and I talked about at the Emergency Operations Center. Take a listen. You know, this is going to, you know, obviously be a significant investment. On the same day the CDC confirmed the 15th U.S. coronavirus case, I went inside the agency's Emergency Operations Center with Director Dr. Robert Redfield. How good is the public health infrastructure at reporting in? To give you an idea of how rapidly the situation is changing. By the way, the numbers changed. I can tell you that. It's actually 15 there. It's a lot to keep up with. What is the worst case scenario here in the United States? So far, we've been able to contain it. But I think uh, this virus is probably with us beyond this season or beyond this year. And I think eventually the virus will find a foothold and we will get community-based transmission. And uh, you can start to think of it in a sense like uh, seasonal flu. And the only difference is we don't understand this virus. Which is exactly why the CDC wants to be on the ground in China. It's probably Redfield's biggest frustration. Uh, right now, there's no evidence to me that this outbreak is at all under control. It, it's definitely not controlled. And the sooner we can help them get it under control, the better for the whole world. So I guess that does raise the question, why are we sitting here in Atlanta talking about this versus the CDC being in China collecting some of this data? I don't think it's a medical decision that we're not being invited in. What do you think it is? Well, I think it's above the medical. You, you think know, it's a political decision? I think it's above the medical. I don't think the, the director of CDC is making that decision. You think it's a political decision? Well, I think it's, all I can say is I think it's above the director of CDC because I know he would love to have us a system. China has accepted help from the World Health Organization. The CDC is waiting to hear whether it's going to be a part of that team. In the meantime, Redfield says his priority is to keep Americans safe. Our whole issue right now is, as I said, aggressive containment to try to give us more time. But it's going to take, you know, one to two years to get that probably developed and out to prepare the, the health systems to be able to be um, flexible enough to deal with the potential second major cause of respiratory illness. So there were several things, Julia, which, uh, you know, sort of were, were, was new information. First of all, this idea, as you heard, uh, that the virus is likely to spread into these communities and become a uh, virus that uh, is uh, within the communities over the next period of time, not, not, not likely to go away. But also this idea of, of buying time uh, is important because with that time, uh, you may come up with better strategies to try and isolate people, but also possibly new therapeutics in terms of treating people and possibly, as everyone's been talking about, Julia, uh, a vaccine. You need time to do that. There's two things that come to mind here. One, the risk of, of greater spreading, to your point about this just being a window to try and prepare and, and get ready for that. Sure. It's one thing if it spreads to a, a developed country like the United States. Mm -hmm perhaps far worse if it spreads to a country that doesn't have the medical facilities, uh, doesn't have the support, the infrastructure perhaps to tackle people. And then the other question for me would be, um, again, can we compare and contrast symptoms? Because the, the fatality rate here is, is far lower than SARS. 
Um, and I think that context here still is needed perhaps not to, to frighten people. Yeah, and, and no question. I think when the World Health Organization declared this as a public health emergency of international concern, uh, you know, you're exactly right. I mean, you know, develop, the developed world is going to have a easier time because of resources of dealing with this, but there are countries and public health systems around the world which are going to have a greater challenge. So these public health emergencies are really geared towards those countries to try and provide resources. And obviously, if you do buy time, than possibly getting some of the therapeutics, some of the treatments, and again, hopefully a vaccine if it's, if it's developed uh, into places that could really use it. Um, I, I think the, the, the idea that the, the transmission is occurring uh, and even occurring asymptomatically, meaning people who have no symptoms, aren't sick at all, still able to spread this, is something else Dr. Redfield uh, confirmed. I asked him about it a few times. But if you think about that, Julia, it does change how we approach this virus, uh, uh, how, who, who we think of as people under investigation, who we have to sort of trace to make sure that they themselves are, are not infected. So that it, it does add a lot of layers to this whole system. And again, we're seeing containment strategies that haven't been used in decades in this country as a result. Yeah, we've talked about it on the show, uh, Sanjay, as well. There's two to three people. Each infected person transmits to two to three people, it seems. So um, yeah, I can't help but feel a global response is needed. Great to have. Great to have you with us. Thank you yeah, so thank much you. For, uh, for that interview and the context. All right, let's move on to our next driver, because we're going to Munich now, where world leaders and uh, military bosses are gathering to talk weapons and welfare, among other things. An event known as the Davos of Security. Nick Peyton Walsh is there for us. And uh, I have to say, the tech titans are right soaring to the top of the agenda here. And Nick, Facebook set to talk about paying more tax. And Huawei, of course, we can't get away from uh, that debate either. What can we expect? Well, we've already certainly heard uh, from U.S. officials here an event on the sidelines, them bolstering a case that they began to extensively make last night by increasing uh, the number of indictments currently leveled against the tech giant Huawei, in which they were accused essentially of racketeering in order to steal intellectual property indictments that also accused Huawei of assisting uh, in Iran and North Korea's repression of its own people. I mean, pretty much everything apart from the kitchen sink to some degree thrown at Huawei, who say that this was essentially a bid to try and irrevocable could be tarnish their image. They've always denied the central US charge that they're sort of some kind of backdoor uh, into the 5G technological systems that they would uh, be part of for the Chinese government. But these US officials from the Department of Justice and state clear on the sidelines here that they consider Huawei and the Chinese Communist Party to some degree inseparable. Uh, and in fact, they said that it's up to Huawei who fast, where's your evidence, United States? It's up to Huawei to prove their innocence uh, and also separate itself essentially entirely from the Chinese Chinese government. So very much the US coming here after the news that the United Kingdom will permit parts uh, of uh, its system to have Huawei equipment put into it. The US continuing to press its case to its European allies here, who it tried to suggest were more positive to its message uh, than before. But as you mentioned too, Mark Zuckerberg, the head of Facebook here, uh, arriving as shortly expected to travel on uh, to Brussels afterwards to meet key EU officials, accepting, as you said, that they believe they will have to possibly pay more 
tax going forwards and asking essentially that some kind of concrete system is put together for tax payments within the European Union. Uh, we will see next week a broader package of digital measures uh, from EU commissioners, certainly, which may begin to cause great attention in that debate about what these US tech giants do when they're not operating entirely in the United States, how money is brought from their services uh, for the coffers of various European powers here. But certainly the Huawei message very strongly voiced by the Trump administration today, Julia. Yeah, absolutely. We will watch for uh, both of those and uh, further details. Now, Nick, also a hot topic there, of course, Afghanistan. And I believe you've got some news on an announcement soon to be made. Or not, at uh, this case, actually. Yes, uh, mm. Julia, I'm hearing from a source close to the talks that uh, we are here potentially expecting an announcement about Afghanistan. Key U.S. officials, here, Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, uh, head of the U.S. military there, and the Afghan president, too. I'm hearing from a source close to the talks that they're not anticipating an announcement today or tomorrow, which, of course, brings to mind whether or not the Afghan president may depart before that is made. Uh, unclear. This could be last-minute haggling. There are a lot of discussions about details still happening, I understand, obviously, inside the room. A lot of things uh, that the Afghan government wants to see as part of this reduction in violence, like possibly the freer passage of its military around during uh, any sort of Taliban or other part, uh, parts of Afghanistan. But uh, possibly bad news here for those American officials who are hoping the choreography of telegraphing this announcement might herald some kind of broader uh, statement or timetable as to when the seven to ten days reduction of violence uh, timetable begins to kick off. As I say, we don't sound at this point like we're going to see it today or tomorrow. Back to you. Yeah, managed expectations. Nick Payton Walsh, thank you so much for that. All right, let's bring you up to speed now on some of the other stories that we're following around the world. In Washington, U.S. Attorney General William Barr issuing a rare public rebuke of President Trump. To have public statements and tweets made about the department, uh, about uh, our people in the department, our, our men and women here, about cases pending in the department, and about judges before whom we have cases, uh, make it impossible uh, for me to do my job. Shimon Prokopez joins us now from Washington with all the details, seemingly asserting his relative independence here, I guess. But the timing does feel key in light of the challenges that we've seen here with the Justice Department and, and Roger Stone. I think you need to give us context here, Shimon, and then we can talk about why. Well, yeah, look, it's seemingly it seems that he's going against the president and this is some kind of rebu rebuke uh, against the, the president. But that's not really entirely clear. And there are a lot of people who are highly skeptical of whether or not what he's doing here is really against the president. There's concern here uh, within the Department of Justice that he is very much aligned with the president. Uh, in fact, so much concern uh, that the integrity, integrity within, within the Justice Department, the AUSAs, the U.S. attorneys that worked, what they're referred to as line assistants, uh, are these uh, lawyers who are prosecutors and they work every day to investigate cases, to prosecute cases. Uh, and there's a lot of concern that the integrity of the Justice Department, because of some of the actions by the attorney general, by Bill Barr, recent actions uh, have hurt uh, the justice system, have hurt the work that the Justice Department conducts. Uh, and so in some ways, people feel that the reason 
why he did this, why he chose to come out and say this was to try and reinforce uh, that he has a su- that he supports the work that the Department of Justice and the prosecutors there are doing on a daily basis. Because right now there's a lot of concern, as I said, inside the Department of Justice uh, that the attorney general doesn't have their back. And so he had to do what he did. But the question is, it, was he really serious about this uh, or was he just sort of coming out to say this for the public so that we all believe and the prosecutors who work at the, at the Department of Justice believe that he has their back? But that's not entirely clear. There are a lot of people who are skeptical uh, of what the attorney general said. Yeah. For whose ears? Was this interview done? It's a great point. Shimon Prokopez there. And the president, I will just mention, uh, tweeting this morning, quoting Attorney General William Barr, the president has never asked me to do anything in a criminal case. This doesn't mean that I do not have, as president, the legal right to do so. I do, but I've so far chosen not to. All right, we're going to take a break. You are watching First Move. Still ahead, could this be a crucial new way of helping to contain the coronavirus? I speak to a boss at a Chinese tech company that thinks drones could be the way forward. Also, the one investment you can never truly put a price on, education. We hear from the company that wants to put a world of knowledge into the palm of your hand. Stay with us. Firstly, move. Let me give you a look at the futures pre-market this morning. Of course, the action a little bit cautious, a little bit softer here, though, as you can see. Actually, we've tilted. No, I'll call that unchanged. Let's leave it there. <laughs> Let's get some context on what we're seeing here. Benil Henneberger joins me from London. She's the Vice President of Global Economics at City Research. Benil, great to have you with us. You guys have produced a report looking at the impact of, of coronavirus, the global impact potentially. I know it's a tough gauge, but what are you saying at this stage to clients when they ask you what you think the impact will be? So the first thing to consider is obviously what the impact on the Chinese economy will be. And here, the, the first thing we look at is the uh, measures taken by the Chinese authorities to contain the spread of the virus. These measures have been aggressive and they suggest there will be a hard hit to the Chinese economy in the first quarter. So specifically, the forecast that our Chinese economies have for the economy is that growth will be only 3.6% in the first quarter of this year. So a dramatic decline uh, in China, which is going to spill over to the rest uh, of the world. China's share in the global economy has increased. Uh, and, and one of the con- years we look at um, uh, from before is 2003, when we had the SARS outbreak. China is much more important for the world now. Uh, so it will also be more important uh, what is happening in China these days. I mean, we've gone from a $1.4 trillion economy to a $14 trillion economy. So I think just in terms of the change in the growth of the Chinese economy since SARS. So I agree with you on that point, but can we talk about the the region in particular? I know you said on the trade side in particular, Vietnam, Taiwan most exposed. We also had Singapore um, warning today that they could see recession too. Just talk about the spillover effects for me in the region. Yeah, so what, what we look at is 
first of all, how it's going to impact the manufacturing and the supply chains. And here um, we will see um, somewhat more of an immediate impact, both in China, but also in the rest of the world. We also expect that there will be a recovery uh, within manufacturing. Some of the countries will be affected with a lack, so it may not be as fast uh, for other countries than uh, in China, but genuinely manufacturing should recover. It's more challenging when we look at services and particularly tourism will be hard hit uh, by the virus outbreak. Here the problem is that services are not storable, so there may be permanent losses. And this is also going to dampen this V-shape that we would otherwise have expected in the economic recovery. Finally, the thing we look at is the oil price impact and our commodity strategists have also made dramatic downward revisions to um, Cities oil price forecast. Uh, so what we have there is in some countries it's kind of counterbalanced the negative shock from the Chinese economy because consumption will be supported by a lower oil price. You know, I think for most investors here, they're, they're looking at the situation and saying, if you look at what the bond market's pricing, what the commodity market's pricing, the stock markets don't seem to be getting it. Stock market investors don't seem to be getting it. What's your response to that? What's City's view? So we did see uh, some market turbulence with the um, outbreak of the virus, and it got market attention uh, a few weeks ago. Um, in uh, equity markets, uh, our uh, U.S. strategist has a panic euphoria model, and it suggested that U.S. stocks were vulnerable already going into this. Uh, when that is said, uh, our more long-term perspective uh, uh, from Citi's equity strategist is that any dip is one that you should buy into. Uh, and when we look at the bond market, as you say, uh, we have seen uh, some reaction. Uh, you would have expected that Europe would be most exposed uh, because it has stronger linkage with China in terms of economic growth. Uh, but U.S. has also reacted. And, and that could reflect that the Fed will have more scope uh, to ease if this spreads and become a more global issue, uh, whereas the ECB has um, reached the effective lower bound. Yeah, I mean, there is already speculation that the European Central Bank could end up adding greater QE here to try and support the economy. Do you think we see recession in Germany? They've been flirting with it for a while. So we have a German number out uh, this morning uh, and what we continue to see is that Germany has uh, manufacturing uh, that is struggling and has been in recession for a long time, but the services sector is still holding up and consumption is still growing. That is kind of the picture on the global economy more broadly uh, and the persistent strength of uh, the service sector is important for growth to continue uh, at the rates that we are expecting, but it seems to be holding up. Yeah, and your point, though, the sort of V-shaped recovery that you're predicting is well important, I think, as well, if investors are looking ahead. Penil, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that. Penil Henberg from City Research. All right, we're counting down to the market open, relatively unchanged at this point in the day. Plenty more to come, though, on the show. Stay with us. The opening bell is next. to first move from the New York Stock Exchange. The opening rail rang a few moments ago and as expected, a pretty cautious flat stop for US stocks. But the S&P and the Nasdaq are seeing modest gains for all the choppiness in the United States this week. Stocks have remained, what, just around 2% away 
for the Dow for that 30,000 milestone. We'll continue to watch that. We've got pretty solid readings on U.S. retail sales today, too. As I mentioned earlier, sales rising and expected 0.3% last month. The U.S. consumer remains a key bright spot for the U.S. economy. What about the commodity market, though? Oil wrapping up a volatile week, making gains in the session, as you can see, both Brent and WTI crude up over 1% in the session. Oil currently on track for its first weekly gain, in fact, since early January. That despite the continued coronavirus growth fears, OPEC and the International Energy Agency all cutting their 2020 demand forecast this week. A bounce from a low base, I believe, but also hopes that OPEC might consider bringing forward their plans to do something here too. All right, throughout this week on First Move, we've been looking at how the coronavirus is choking international supply lines. It's affecting importers of Chinese goods everywhere. Claire Sebastian is visiting a company in New Jersey which relies on China to turn a profit. Claire, not to take it away from the tragedy that's going on here, but just talk about what the company is saying and what kind of impact they've already seen. Yeah, Julia, it's been pretty stuck. This is a company called Moncherie Bridal, which imports 90% of these many, many dresses that you see around me from China. We're in their, their warehouse right now. There are about 35,000 dresses, they say, in this warehouse. That's wedding dresses, prom dresses, things like that. But if we look over here, if you follow me all the way around to this other part of the warehouse, you can start to see the impact from the virus. These empty racks that you see behind me, there would otherwise be dresses there. They haven't been getting shipments from China. Their workers in their 45 factories on the east coast of China, they were supposed to go back to work at the beginning of this week, at the end of the Lunar New Year holiday. Only half of the factories got up and running, they say, because they were still disinfecting. Because as we know, with the travel restrictions and the lockdowns, many workers were struggling to get back. So that is causing disruption. They haven't had any shipments yet through from China. There's also, uh, you know, clogging up of the freight lines. It's difficult to get shipping capacity, but they do expect one next week. And the question, Julia, for many companies like this is, should they diversify out of China? Will the tariffs, along with the coronavirus, accelerate that trend? They say they've already started. They have some facilities in Myanmar and Vietnam. But if you look at these wedding dresses, the kind of work that you see on, on a dress like this, the needlework, the beading, the stitching, they say it's very hard to replicate outside of China. And this is something we see across the apparel industry, Julia. 42% of the clothes that are imported into the U.S. come from China. So it is a big part of the supply chain here. And this disruption is something that we're seeing throughout this industry. Yeah, and that was exactly the question I was going to ask you. It's the, the double whammy of the tariffs and the trade tensions that we've seen and now the impact on supply yeah. chains of, of the coronavirus. The question, I guess, for me is, does it accelerate that decision-making process? If you held out perhaps on the tariffs, do you now go, actually, we simply need to diversify our supply chain here? And in the case of this company, um, quite quickly too. Well, the problem is, what they're telling us is that there's no way to do this quickly. Right. You're talking about not only building a factory, you're talking about training up the staff. And it's that training that is really the bottleneck here. It takes a long time for people to, to learn how to do this. The, the CEO of this company was telling me that some of their workers in China can make dresses like this now without even using a pattern. They're so experienced uh, in this regard. And that's one of the problems that we're seeing, Julia, as well with the coronavirus, is that some of the key employees uh, at some of these factories aren't making it back. The lead cutters, for example, and that's 
it's paralyzing the operation. Not to mention, of course, that the factory isn't the only part of the supply chain in China. There are fabric mills, there are, uh, you know, other sort of fabric uh, factories that they get their materials from. And even if you do diversify out of China, you may still be relying on China to get those materials. Yeah, and there's still a huge delay, months and months and months. Claire Sebastian, great context. Thank you so much for joining us on that story. Now, there's a high-tech weapon in the battle against coronavirus. DJI, the world's largest maker of consumer drones, is deploying its fleet of drones to spray disinfectant in potentially affected areas. For more, we're joined by Brendan Shulman. He's Vice President of Policy and Legal Affairs at DJI. Great to have you with us. Specifically, tell me what you're doing and how you're using drones, because I believe you're operating now in a 1,000 counties in, in China. Yeah, that's right. Actually, drones can do a lot of amazing things. And what we found lately is that we can use them to disperse disinfectant to help uh, combat disease. And really, that's uh, a matter of taking drones that were built for agricultural purposes, in other words, like pesticide and fertilizer, and converting them to use disinfectant. We're doing that. Um, we have a commitment of $1.5 million, and this is now being done in conjunction with agriculture researchers across 1,000 uh, counties in China. Yes. Uh, and uh, at, at the moment, we've got up to 250 square miles of land that's been done this way. It's 50 times faster than doing it by hand. Wow. I guess there's also the distance benefits to some degree as well. You don't have people inhaling the chemicals, perhaps? Exactly right. The, the people who are dispersing the disinfectant can now be very far away from the, the chemicals themselves. So it's also safer for the workers. Wow. Okay. And 50 times faster, which makes perfect sense. What about what they're seeing? Have you captured images as well? I mean, we've seen pictures, and I've seen your pictures in, in Shenzhen as well, just to go back to the, the sort of point that we were talking about just there. It's very quiet. People are going out less, they're moving around less. Well, the, the, um, the, the virus coincided with the Lunar New Year, so what effectively happened is that the, the vacation that people were taking already was extended an extra week. Uh, as of this week, people are back at work, they're working from home, they're following the health protocols that are recommended by the government. And of course, we care most about the health of our, of our workers there, and, and so they're following uh, the protocols that are recommended. That's interesting. Your employees are back at work. Are you still allowing a proportion of them to work from home? That's correct. You are? Yes. Yeah, so it's just going to take time to, to get back up to speed here. Well, we're, we haven't been substantially affected by, by this yet. I think it remains to be seen in the long term. How long does this last? What, you know, what, what if any, disruption is there? But our factories are, are back at work. We're producing the product. Uh, and, and thankfully, our employees are safe and healthy. What about supply chains here? Again, to go back to the, the conversation we were just having, what does that mean for, for your company? What's your sense here? Well, we're, we're a global technology company, yeah. so just like any other consumer device, uh, we rely on components from the United States uh, and from around the world. And, and our products, I mean, here is an example of one of our latest drones. So we're, when we talk about drones, we're not talking about military systems. We're no. talking about a camera that can fly. And so this can take pictures, it can search for missing people. Uh, in fact, we've noted over 320 people have been rescued from peril. People who are missing, people who are in avalanches, floods and fires, just using an aerial camera. And so the components that go into this are very much the same as you might find in your mobile telephone or your iPad or your laptop. Okay, so you're giving me the, um, the reasons and the, the sort of hard sell on why this technology is good, but there is pushback. A couple of things that I want to talk to you about. The first one being this idea of a, a sort of blanket system for a database that knows exactly who's operating a drone where. What's that going to mean in practice? And I guess in terms of innovation too, does that mean that consumers will be like, wow, 
um, I'm not sure I want one after all. Well, that's a great question. So what, one of the top policy priorities for the U.S. government and really around the world is what we call remote identification. That's basically like a license plate for drones. So that when the drones are flying, security officials, law enforcement, and even the public can have some assurance about who's flying the drone and are they authorized to be here. That's a great idea. We support it. In fact, we have built it into our products for the past two and a half years. However, there's now a proposal from the FAA, the Federal Aviation yes. Administration, on how to do that. And that proposal envisions connecting all the drones to a database system, as you suggested. Even a drone like this? Uh, this is slightly below the proposed Ooh. weight limit, okay. but something that's just a little bit heavier than, than this would have to connect. Uh, and the FAA anticipates monthly subscription fees just to use something a little bit bigger than this to fly in your backyard, take pictures of your vacation, um, or do something more productive like tower inspection or agriculture. So we support remote ID, but we're worried about the costs and burdens of doing it. From our perspective, all you need is a radio broadcast out to provide that ID information. But the the um, drone that caused the chaos in the UK airports, that would be covered. And you're in agreement with that kind of drone in some way being tracked. It, we, we agree that all drones should be tracked if they could cause a problem. It's yes. not clear what happened in Gatwick. Uh, a lot of uncertainty about that, whether there even was a drone. However, that scenario is something we need to guard against. And the way to do that is to have remote ID on all the drones out there that could cause a problem like that. And that way, the good ones, the legitimate ones, are identified to the authorities, and those that aren't stand out and action can be taken. Very quickly, Chinese technology being used in, in federal operations, the restrictions that we're seeing, there's a real nervousness. Where do you stand on this? It, it, it largely stems from political considerations. As you know, our products, are they're cameras that fly. They only take pictures of what you want to take pictures of. But is the data safe? The data is safe. We, none of that data comes automatically back to our offices or to our, to our facilities. We have data security features built in, things called local data mode. Our government products developed for government agencies have been validated and tested by the Department of Homeland Security, CISAs, contractors and, and, and laboratories, as well as the Department of the Interior. So we've taken affirmative proactive measures in the absence of any standards that would tell us what to do to guard data, and we're confident that anyone using our product should be secure. We'll get you back and we'll discuss this further. Thank, Thank you, you so much, Brendan Shulman. There. Time now for a look at our global movers. Shares of Nissan tumbling to a 10-and-a-half-year low in Tokyo trading today. The Japanese auto giant issuing a shock profit warning earlier this week and saw Q3 profits falling some 83%. Investors now fearing the company will have to slash its dividend too. Tesla also a mover in the session today. The company pricing its secondary stock offering at $776 a share. A bit below Thursday's closing price. Where are we? We're down some eight, six, eight tenths of one percent. Shares of Pinterest lower also in the session by some six tenths of one percent. Facebook releasing a competing photo sharing app called Hobby in some of its global markets. A bit of competition there, perhaps. Reports also say Japan, Japanese e-commerce giant Rakuten has sold its entire stake in Pinterest. What about canopy growth? Wow, soaring up some 21%. The cannabis producer reporting a 62% quarterly sales jump in the third quarter. It posted a 35 cents a share loss, but analysts were expecting a much wider 50 cent a share loss. So uh, analysts liking what they're hearing there. All right, we're going to take a break here on First Move, but coming up, some lessons in growth. We study the learning app that's top of the class in India and now looking to get ahead in the rest of the world. That's after this. Stay with us. 
to first move. Call it an education revolution, small enough to fit in your pocket and yet big enough to get the attention of investors. Baidu is an education technology firm offering online tutoring. Its learning app has tens of millions of users and the company is now valued at around $8 billion. It's the brainchild of entrepreneur Baidu Ravindran. He's founded the company to help Indian students excel and now it's taking off globally. I spoke to him about how he got started in technology and how he hopes to jumpstart the firm's profitability. I come from a small village, so I didn't have access to even a good school. So even the, the English, the average English which I speak here yes. is what I've learned by listening to sports commentary on radio. So math and science, I've first I've taught myself and I used to teach kids in the village. Right. And then um, by learning and teaching uh, and following that passion of math and learning math and teaching math. So though I talked about uh, the challenges in the system and an opportunity of a large student population, that's not the reason why I started the business. It's, it's a clear case of you pursuing your passion and that intersecting with a clear need in the society. Yeah, you in, saw in, the in, gap. Yeah, and then uh, because it started making an impact, it ended up becoming business. So I, I always tell that I'm an engineer by uh, chance. Uh, teacher by choice, which made me an entrepreneur by chance. <laughs> okay, let's talk about the numbers then. 40 million subscribers, but only 3 million subscriptions. Where do you see that ratio going? Can you encourage more than that 3 million or the ratio of 3 out of 40 million to pay? Yeah, it's a, it's a freemium model. So depending on what the students need and how much they help they need from the application, yeah. they have an option of moving from a free user to a paid user. So that conversion ratio has been moving up. Right. So the fact that there are 3 million uh, continuous users, those who are spending on an average uh, 71 minutes on a daily basis, so it's, it's a clear... Uh, 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 That's the three million. Uh, of the three million. Yes. So, and with segment awareness increasing over a period of time, this conversion rates have been moving up. So... Where but, do you see that rate going? So uh, I expect that to go up to 10% from a free to a paid user over the next few quarters. Wow. Right now it's at uh, seven, seven and a half percent. Yes. And where beyond? Where do you think that then stabilizes? So the Let's fast forward. No, the yeah, opportunity, two, four years. opportunity to create, uh, because even today, though, uh, like people talk about us as a large education company coming out of India, probably one of the most valued education technology companies in the world. But uh, even today, our uh, penetration for paid users is under two percentage. So the opportunity to create yeah. a scalable, sustain, but the best part about this is already profitable. So we are independent that way in, in for the for our primary market, which is India, which is giving us an opportunity and having a large primary market is giving us an opportunity to give a good attempt at creating one or two more new markets. Where? So we'll start with natural extension will be English speaking markets. Makes sense. Uh, like, uh, it's too early for me to disclose further oh, details. I thought about you were going to disclose there. <laughs> Just encouraging you. Playing at Bitcoin, I did try there, but it's pretty certain that Baidu has its eyes on the US market. The company's lined up high-profile investors that see global opportunities for the app's special take on learning. But the key question for me is, how do you make learning so addictive? Take a listen. What we have done is that by using a lot of new age formats, right. which kids like. So let's say movie-like videos, <laughs> game-like interactions. It's content. Yes. So how, like... By doing, by investing a lot upfront in terms of 
making it engaging but without losing its effectiveness finding that right balance between engagement and effectiveness is and the indication is there because students are spending an hour on the application and this these are not uh, these are not entertainment movies no. these are math movies science <laughs> movies and that that's an indication that they like it but that's not enough because in education uh, you need to show the results so the biggest indicator is 85 percentage of our uh, annual user base they renewed from last year to this year is a clear validation that it's helping them because uh, otherwise they wouldn't sign up again. otherwise they won't sign up again so that that's the, the the best part about the model so i think other validation perhaps is who's investing in you i know you've just closed a, a funding round in uh, in recent weeks but if i look at those that have invested there's sovereign wealth funds there's pension funds like the canadian pension fund um chan zuckerberg initiative tencent as well uh, has invested you now have a valuation a private market valuation i believe of eight billion dollars yeah i wouldn't want to talk too much about the valuation but uh we have an inherent advantage of attracting best of the investors best of the talent because it's a segment which is close to all of us yes education now though you might say that the one segment where most of the investors have not made money but it's close to all of us now it's this is personal. one of those few segments where uh, uh, you do well you'll end up doing good so now easy to start a mission driven company if you can keep it mission driven i i i'm sure uh, there's a long way to go and we can be relevant even after 10 years 20 years and that's uh, and short term you can't do much in this segment because you need to take uh, create a lot of content make sure that it's adding value to the users first you need to get that engagement from students and especially in this day and age getting that attention of the the next generation is a big challenge that's what we are we are slowly but surely solving it and uh, the idea is to create a large long term business which will actually make an impact now you can say that the aspiration is to create a large education company coming out of india a large tech company coming out of india but uh, they're all uh, still uh, like they can all be the results but that's not what we are after we are after to make sure that there are more and more students getting the benefit of this because uh, that will uh, help the country that will help uh, the students that help their families so the real fun in this segment is not in creating a billion dollar company but in changing the way millions think and learn okay so it's valentine's day coming up after the break stocks investors love and those they love to hate see you back to the show and happy valentine's day to you all for now a quick look at stocks that make investors hearts beat a little faster this year's main squeeze in the dow is microsoft up more than 16% in 2020 elon musk still a heartthrob to tesla shares are up some 90% year to date and netflix the best performing fang stock up 17% what about the big dow losers in 2020 the energy stocks both exxon and chevron breaking the hearts of all investors ford the worst performing us auto stock down 11% we'll call it a romeo in reverse boom <laughs> that just about wraps up the show i'm julia chasley happy valentine's day to you and to my team as well lots of love for those guys you've been watching first move time to go make yours and some chocolate for me i'm dr sanjay gupta host of the chasing life podcast in honor of our 10th season We want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.